Remember this portion of the story of God as it's written in the book that we love from Luke chapters 22 and 23. And he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. When he had arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down, and began to pray, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow, and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and one called Judas. One of the twelve was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest, but Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with them too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And about an hour had passed, and another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you were talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When they came to the place of the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> At the beginning of every worship service, we are... We have recently decided to recite an affirmation of faith. Faith is certainly got a lot to do with what we believe, what we know about God and ourselves and how the two come together. But faith is a great deal more than just thoughts and beliefs. The, the Apostle uh, James writing uh, in uh, the book of James, the epistle of James, says that uh, the devil... 
And, and the demons know who Jesus Christ is. They know the Bible and the word of God and they tremble. Uh, but that doesn't bring them the saving virtue of faith. Faith in God is a complex set of beliefs and commitments built around our trust that God is holy, that he is good, and that he is loving. And that his holiness, goodness, and love will triumph over our redemption from the evil that surrounds us and the evil that is in us as well. Faith is the determined belief that his holiness is light and life itself. That his goodness is truly good and that his love will prove our greatest treasure even when the darkness around us feels more real than our memory of the last loving act of kindness that God showed to us. The psalmist said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. More than all of this, faith is action. It is the choice to stay in the current of God's will, the flow of God's will, obeying his direction and trusting in his power to accomplish what he has commanded us to do, what he has determined for us to do in us and through us. Faith participates in the good and the loving works he is doing as he brings about salvation and the final triumph of his kingdom over death and evil. However, faith is being all of these things, but there are some things that faith is not. And, and chiefly what faith is not is that it is not a charm that keeps us from doubt or deep sorrow. There are experiences in our lives that tempt us to discard faith and to live in accordance with either our appetites or to discard hope and faith altogether and to despair as Job's wife did when in answer to the bitterness of her life experiences, she advised Job to curse God and die. Today's scripture shows us three people whose faith was tempted and how they dealt with it. First of all, we have Jesus' example itself. And again, it's important to, to underscore what we know about Jesus, that he wasn't part God and part man. He was totally God. He was totally man. He was unique in all of heaven and earth in being both of those things. And we are told in Hebrews that he was tempted just like we were, but he didn't sin. So we know that Jesus, and this is hard for us to accept, we, we accept the idea of it, but when it comes right down to it, to see, it's hard to imagine Jesus in Gethsemane in the state that he was really in. How many of you have seen that Christian picture of Jesus in Gethsemane where he's kneeling with a rock with his hands folded like this? You know, every hair in place looks like... The Breck girls, for those of you my age, remember Breck shampoo and, you know, that beautiful flowing hair and it's all composed. But he was, he, 
In one of the Gospels, where he's even presented that he threw himself on the ground at one point and was prostrate, praying to God. Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane wrestles in agony to be reconciled to the good but terrible will of his Father. Jesus' temptation was dread. Dread is when the future calls on your greatest fears of loss and sorrow, when it takes the real dangers that are coming and it multiplies them exponentially with the thoughts about it coming and the anticipation of it, and and it makes it bigger than it is. Dread is knowing what is coming. And it calls up all of your fears of loss and sorrow. Now, what would fill Jesus with such dread that sweat poured out of him like he was bleeding from a wound is subject to debate. Some commentators claim that his dread was the indescribable agony of separation, of his coming separation from the Trinity that would that there would be the first time that that had happened. And I can imagine that that would be true. But I can also imagine that everything facing Jesus in the next 24 hours was a smorgasbord of suffering and loss to be dreaded. More than any of us here today, and this is what makes it even harder for Jesus, I think. More than any of us here today, Jesus knew what real abundant life really was. Both in heaven, in the unifying love of the Trinity, and in creation. More than any of us, Jesus knew just how obscene death was. And how wonderful creation without death was meant to be. Add to that the betrayal and the rejection that he would face, the insult, shame, and painful suffering that was the public spectacle of crucifixion. And it's easy to imagine Jesus' dread. At the cross... God, because again, Jesus is in part God. He is God. It's a mystery that we can't understand. At the cross, God would experience death twice over in the sense that he suffered death in that he himself died, but he also suffered death as the loss of the one he treasured most. Like suffering death if we lose our spouse or our child or our parent. All of it in one event. The suffering was multiplied. Jesus wrestled with his father in prayer. And it reminded me of Jacob wrestling. That passage in the Old Testament. Jacob at Penuel. Where he wrestled with someone at night. And before dawn realized that he was wrestling with God himself. And after wrestling most of the night away. Jacob exclaimed. I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jesus was wrestling. He was wrestling for that blessing. But I don't think that he was wrestling with God so much as he was wrestling with his own heart. 
In the end, the Father must have blessed Jesus with peace and strength to bear the cross because that is what he did. And he did it with courage. And he did it with love. And he did it with hope. Jesus' faith was tempted by dread. And through prayer, he pushed through it. Something about Jesus, however, must have disappointed Judas. And contempt became Judas's temptation. Slowly, whatever faith Judas may have had initially had turned to contempt for Jesus, and he betrayed Jesus to the priests in Sanhedrin. And he showed the contempt. I didn't, I'm not going to talk about it here, but he, he kissed Jesus on the cheek. And this was like, like the woman who kissed Jesus' feet while she was anointing his feet with, with uh, perfume. Uh, like, like the Apostle Paul telling the church, admonishing the church, encouraging us to greet each other with a holy kiss. A kiss was, was more than a handshake. It, was, it is more intimate than a handshake. It's, it's close. It's personal. And unlike those gangster movies where the gangster is about ready to kill another gangster and he says, hey, it's just business, nothing personal, it's just business. This was business and it was personal. And that's what Judas was communicating. He had contempt for Jesus. Perhaps Jesus was disappointed with Jesus' choice of suffering over conquest. Or Jesus' obsession with always serving others rather than being served. Maybe Judas expected Jesus to cash in on his gifts like a televangelist and enjoy a good living, rewarding his friends in the process. We all can experience disappointment with God. God can disappoint us when he does something or allows something that is hard and deeply hurtful. Or when he fails to intervene as evil lashes out and bites us. God can disappoint us when his goodness and love looks like simple oversimplifying everything. It looks like naivete and foolishness. Or when his patience feels like either disinterest or impotence. Contempt triumphs over faith when we believe we have all the facts that we need to have and all the wisdom necessary to judge God and to dismiss him. Instead of wrestling, like Jesus and Jacob did, to seek God's heart and to know his mind, the arrogant person decides that God's heart is cold and his mind is empty. Dread, contempt, and failure. If Judas was disappointed with Jesus, Peter was disappointed with himself. Our most painful failures, which can become terrible temptations to give up our faith. Our most painful failures spring from our greatest achievements and successes. And that's the irony of it all. We feel like Peter must have felt 
just before the events that we're talking about here. We feel like we're finally getting the knack of living well, or since we're believers, the, the knack of living faithfully, when out of nowhere, we encounter some dark, fatal flaw, a flaw that has always haunted us, that we thought was in the past, that we thought we had dealt with, that we thought was, had no power over us, that we had gotten beyond. Peter had just done, and the verses that we read today, Peter had just done everything he said he would do. Even Jesus, though Jesus said, you're going to deny me, Peter said, I'll go to prison and I will die for you. And he had just done everything he said he was going to do. When all the others were running around and hiding or panicking and shouting, what do we do, what do we do, when the crowd came to arrest Jesus? Peter dove in and did exactly what he said he would do, either to go to prison or to die for Jesus. It's important, again, that you remember that the crowd that accosted Jesus at Gethsemane was described in one of the gospel accounts as a Roman cohort. All right? And a cohort is an armed guard of some four to six hundred soldiers. And even a smaller provincial militia of a cohort, especially when it's backed by the temple guard, would present a mass of armed people that would be rank on rank. And in the darkness, it would look like a million. And there was absolutely no thought in Peter's mind that he was going to be able to win this battle. This was a forlorn hope. You can look that up. This was a, a hopeless charge on Peter's part, and he did it with passion, and he did it with zeal. Yet Peter grabbed one of the swords while everyone else was wondering what to do, and he rushed on this group. Peter's courage and his zealous success at faithfulness was not met with affirmation or with glory or with well done. Rather, it was rebuked by Jesus. And I think that Jesus' rebuke wasn't just to Peter. I think it was to everybody assembled. He was saying, settle down, stop this. It met with rebuke. And what little damage that Peter was able to do, Jesus undid. It was all so confusing. What in the world was happening? Following Jesus next, that took courage. Even at a distance, he followed Jesus to the high priest's house with John in the courtyard. And we know that this was not some big county courthouse with lots of rooms and walls. It was open enough that at some point Jesus and, John, uh, and Peter could see each other. So they were close. It took some courage for Peter and John to do this. Following Jesus to the high priest's house with John rather than run away, seemed the faithful thing to do, but it proved to be a mistake. There were people there who recognized Peter and tried to link him to Jesus. And in the lowest moment of Peter's discouragement and utter confusion, the evil that had overtaken Jesus in the garden, which he barely understood, was now stalking him. He needed time to think, to sort this out. What, where, where am I headed with this? So he betrayed his master. He betrayed his friend 
with vulgar oaths, denying that he ever knew him. And then that stupid rooster crowed three times, and he saw Jesus turn and look at him. Peter saw that face, and with everything else being an uncertainty and an incredible chaos, a mess, where three years had led up to this moment of death and destruction. It was, it was all going to come apart. In the middle of all that, he saw the face of Jesus and immediately knew that the only thing true, certain, and trustworthy in this whole mess was that face. And he had just betrayed and abandoned him. In that moment, Peter realized that the, char the changes in him, the new man that he thought he had become, he was going to sit on a throne, Jesus had just said it, and judge the 12 tribes. And he realized that the changes in, in him hadn't gone deep enough. He wondered if he had changed at all. He was proving to be the failure and the fool he always knew that he was. The terrible old sinner that he told Jesus he was when he first met him. Leave me alone, Lord. You don't want me. Peter knew. When he saw that face, he knew that Jesus would never have disowned him. And his failure, his betrayal of Jesus, struck at his faith like a knife to his heart. Where Jesus had bled sweat, Peter bled tears. At the beginning of all of this, Jesus admonished them, encouraged them. He said, listen, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And what he meant was, because he was going to be tempted, it wasn't that they weren't going to be tempted, it was a prayer that temptation would not reach out of the abyss of despair, grab a hold you, and pull you into it. Fight, resist, don't give in. Jesus prayed through temptation until his heart and mind meshed with the Father's heart and mind. Jesus prayed until the Father gave him the spiritual resolve, peace, and strength to act faithfully in obedience, to do the terrible things that had to be done. As a result, Jesus was not a victim. He was a victor. Judas was a different story. Because he believed that he had a better grip on reality than Jesus did, Judas thought that his temptation to despise, to scorn Jesus, wasn't temptation at all. It was actually insight and wisdom that woke him up out of his religious daydreams into the real truth about the real world. Judas settled on 30 pieces of silver as the most believable and trustworthy thing in his life. He understood wealth even if he didn't understand Jesus. His pride 
judged Jesus rather than learn from him. It would have been much better if he had asked Jesus hard questions and waited on him to respond and learn the answers. But Judas thought himself too wise and too clever to even need to ask those questions. Thing when it all shook out that Judas was genuinely shocked and dismayed when Jesus was sentenced to death. I think it's possible he was lied to by the Sanhedrin that he thought that as far as it was going to go was as far as Pilate wanted to take it, which was a sound beating within an inch of his life and then sent him on his way. Judas just wanted to teach Jesus a lesson and say, see, this 30, I've got 30 pieces of silver now. You got nothing. You and your, your boys got nothing. I've got something. This is how the world works. And I think that when Jesus was led to the cross and Judas saw the consequences of his betrayal, it all came in on him like a tsunami of regret. And he had nothing, nothing to hold him up. Peter was lost in his grief for quite some time. But Jesus didn't abandon him. When Peter faced facts, and he decided that who he really was, all he was ever really good for was what he was going to go back and do until his mind could get around what had just happened in the last three years. He went back to fish. And that's where Jesus met him. Now, Peter must have been looking or expecting that Jesus was going to look for him. Remember, he saw that face. He knew that face wouldn't deny him. And it brought shame at first, but now maybe it brought hope for him as well. Like that sheep in the parable that was lost that Jesus came out to seek. Peter was the first one on the boat to recognize that the guy on the shore telling him how to fish, making breakfast, was Jesus. If the picture of Jesus' face burned into Peter's memory that night at the high priest's house was enough to strip him of all of his pride and self-sufficiency, it was also enough to keep hope for reconciliation alive in Peter's heart. He knew that Jesus would never betray him. Jesus asked Peter hard questions. Peter answered faithfully. Peter was not only restored to Jesus personally, but he was restored with a piece of the family business, a, a part in his master's work to do. The lesson here is that our failure never separates us from God. Our shame at being a failure can tell us something truthful. But if we embrace that shame and hold on to it, if it keeps us from our faith, from returning in trust to the Lord, hoping for renewal and reconciliation, then it becomes a very twisted and sick, our shame becomes a very twisted and sick expression of our arrogance, where we say we are better at sinning then God is at forgiving. I thought I was a better person. 
I, I can't, I just can't accept forgiveness, being the kind of person I am. And in that way, we kind of climb up on our pedestal again and see, well, I may not be much, but at least I know I'm not much. It's very twisted. It's very twisted, but people do it. And if you're willing to let go of it, failure can bring you a lot closer and <coughs> dig foundations for the, for the construction of faith in your heart that are much deeper and much more powerful than ever success could do. Because that's how God works. If we wait hopefully on God, even when we loathe ourselves, he will come and lift us up, call us beloved, and make real progress in our souls if we get rid of our trust in ourselves, our pride, our arrogance, our loathing of ourselves, and we trust in him. And we desire more than anything else to be wrapped up in his holiness and his love and his goodness. A life, a faithful life, can expect that God will challenge it. That, that is an expectation you can have. As a matter of fact, if you haven't been challenged recently, then you should make that an issue with God. I know none of us want to pray that God would test us and challenge us, but you know, if we're not growing, we're dying. Look at your life. Talk to God about it. If you are being challenged, understand that God is in charge. It's not up to you to make it a success. Your job is to hang on. To hang on in prayer. To get together with friends, both Jesus and Peter. Met with friends. Surrounded themselves with their community again, their people. In order to face the challenge of temptation. In addition to praying. Our job is to hang on for all we're worth, praying fervently and honestly, always honestly, until God leads us or carries us out of those hard times. Because he is faithful, even when we are not. And in all of it, remember that the testimony of Jesus of Peter, of Paul, of all of the disciples, all of the saints, all of the prophets, is regardless of the cost, it's all so, so worth it. Let's pray. Lord God, it is through trials and temptations that you strengthen our faith, that you take us on that final journey of faith that takes us past ourselves, out of ourselves, beyond ourselves, and into you. Only to find that what we left behind, what died when we did that, was the old self. And a new self is born because of what you are doing in us. We praise you and we thank you, Lord God. We ask that, I ask that every person here, Lord, would would know the protection and the guidance and the power of your spirit to face each challenge that exists for them between now and their end or the end of the world so that each person here might face you and be called faithful by you. 
Christ's name. Amen.